This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bonilson. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. The theme we'll be debating in this podcast is Myanmar after the coup. I'm joined by Christian Stocke, professor at the Department of Sociology and Human Geography in Oslo, and Martin Nilsson, senior researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO. Both Christian and Marte were part of a recent webinar on the same theme organized by our network. And I'd like to thank you both for being here today to continue this conversation. As our listeners will know, on the 1st of February, Myanmar's military seized power after detaining the country's civilian leadership. The coup was staged on the day parliament was scheduled to hold its first session since the November elections in which the National League for Democracy, the NLD, won a large majority of the body's available seats. The military and its political allies have since the election raised allegations of fraud, but have not been backed by the Election Commission. Citing the 2008 Constitution, the military has now declared a year-long state of emergency and says it will hold a free and fair election once the state of emergency is over. The coup has reversed the limited political reforms that the military itself installed in 2011 to create a so-called disciplined democracy. However, the military seems unable to control or hold back the democratic revolution of Myanmar that has taken place in the same period. Resistance against this coup has been extensive, and the past weeks have seen tens of thousands of people taking to the streets daily to protest the coup in demonstrations not seen since the Saffron Revolution of 2007. The response by the military has been one of repression and violence. Indeed, as we record this podcast, we have just received news that upwards of 40 protesters were killed in Myanmar yesterday, as the 14th of March saw a new record death toll. In this podcast, we discuss the events leading to the coup in Myanmar and analyze its implications. What does the military intend to achieve during the state of emergency? And what will the coup and the widespread civil resistance mean for Myanmar's democratic future? Christian Stocke, let's begin with the context. Please explain to us what happened on the 1st of February and perhaps more importantly, why it happened. Thank you. Um, As you said, to justify the takeover, the military claimed that there was a national emergency situation that required a coup to restore stability and democracy. Um, So they argue that it is within the constitution and for the purpose of democracy. Uh, This claim is dismissed by almost everyone and the general agreement that it is an an unconstitutional military coup. And then the question is, how can we explain this? Some observers emphasize internal factors within the military, Min Aung personal ambitions, and the appointment of his successor as chief commander. But more broadly, the coup is 
most likely about civil military relations since the political opening in 2011. The opening was designed and implemented by the military from a position of strength. It was not a negotiated transition to democracy. Uh, it created a hybrid regime with extensive powers for the military, a military-dominated open economy, and clientelist ceasefire deals that gave the military the upper hand also in the armed conflicts. After NLD's landslide victory in 2015, the last five years have seen a contentious coexistence between the NLD and the military in government. The NLD has tried to reduce the power of the military through constitutional change, while the military was trying to undermine the government and discredit Aung San Suu Kyi personally, most dramatically seen in the massive ethnic cleansing against the Rohingyas in 2017. The military's power was also challenged by NLD's attempt to negotiate peace in the so-called Panglong peace process. And the military may have feared for their economic interest as business tycoons have become more autonomous and some of them have also aligned with NLD. And because NLD was expected to pursue economic reforms in the next government period. So these power struggles in the, within the coexistence in government gave the military a sense of political marginalization and created a fear that their political and economic order was threatened despite strong constitutional protection. The common expectation before the election in last November was that the NLD would be weakened, but instead they won an even bigger landslide victory than in 2015. This outcome made it clear to the military that they will not win back government power within the electoral system that they had created. And in this very strong position and reform agenda also raised the fear of further constitutional changes and other reforms. It seems that the military felt marginalized and probably humiliated and was fearful for the coming government period. In their view, they had to intervene before it was too late, which meant taking power before the new parliament was constituted, the president elected and the government formed. That is why the coup happened and why it happened exactly on February 1st. Yes, seen from, from the outside, this coup may indeed seem a little bit puzzling. The, the armed forces, as we know, already held significant power through the 2008 constitution. And as I think uh, you wrote on your Facebook wall after the coup, Christian, uh, the constitution that is now suspended was in fact enacted during junta rule to ensure the continued power of the military in spite of democratic uh, elections. Uh, Martin Nielsen, what increased power does the military now have? And uh, perhaps more importantly, what do they want to achieve politically uh, and economically? Thank you, Kenneth. Uh, well, to start with, I don't think they wanted to do a lot of changes. Uh, as Christian very well outlined here, they've worked 20 years now for this specific uh, structure of, uh, of a discipline flourishing democracy that they work so hard for. I think it's more about trying to secure their power 
uh, I feel they they feel like they were losing control um, and also being quite impatient uh, and irritated with the NLD who's winning such a landslide election time after time. Uh, and on the side of the military, they feel like NLD is very incompetent uh, as opposed to themselves. So, so it's, they're really frustrated by this whole situation. And I think what they really wanted to do was to do a Thailand, to do what Thailand, uh, the neighboring country did some years ago when they took, the military took um, power in uh, 2014 to sort of readjust the political system. Um, tightening some constitutional loopholes, uh, rewrite election laws, maybe ban some politicians, some political parties, and then hold election. And in Thailand now, the coup maker is the um, prime minister. So these kind of structures, I think what they plan to do now, they totally underestimated the resistance that they would uh, face uh, doing this kind of thing. And now that as far as protesters go and political parties and all the political actors in Myanmar, now the military has broken that pact that, so, that was installed and that every political um, actor sooner or later went in to, to, uh, to, to uh, accept this uh, 2008 constitution as a framework for political reform. Now this is all broken. So the military has worked very hard for 20 years to get this system, and now they themselves have uh, broken it. You mentioned the, the resistance now, Marta, and, and the demonstrations uh, against the coup. So, so let's dwell on this theme for, for some time. Um, Christian, who are the actors and the groups involved in these demonstrations, and how has it, uh, how has it all been, been organized so far? Yes, it is indeed a large-scale mobilization and a very complex one. It is a true multitude of resistance. Uh, I think that within this movement, we can identify four main uh, political forces. The first one is the NLD, the ruling party. On the day of the coup, the party leaders called for popular resistance through nonviolence. Uh, MPs from NLD <clears throat> has formed a committee representing the union parliament and appointed acting ministers. This means that there are two bodies that claim to be the legitimate government in Myanmar, the military junta and the CRPH. The second main force is the civil disobedience movement, which was formed on the second day of the coup. CDM stems from workers and their unions in private and public sectors, workers in garment factories, hospitals, schools, banks, state ministries, mining, transportation, and energy have left work and declared a general strike. This has made Myanmar very difficult to govern for the military and has also brought the economy to an almost standstill, including import and export trade. Third, the general public and especially youth have participated in large-scale public demonstrations since the first week of February. While the early demonstrations were dominated by CDM, youth came to symbolize the movement later and took the lead. It is also the youth that is now at the forefront of the self-defense that is organized in many neighborhoods and have emerged in recent days. Fourth, 
the ethnic nationalities, which were a bit hesitant at first, but since gained a prominent position in public protest and in the broader movement. The ethnic nationalities have been especially important in broadening the political demands. In the beginning, the call was for the return of the previous hybrid order, the release of political leaders. Um, now the demand is much broader than that for federal democracy uh, based on a new constitution. If you look at it historically, the ethnic movements and the democracy movement have existed for a long time. The ethnic movement go back to the late 40s, early 50s, the NLD to the 1988 democracy uprising. What is new now is the prominent position of workers and unions and of youth generation set. The military assumed that they could control the resistance by taking out the ethnics and NLD, but they were taken by surprise by the, the scale and the power of workers and youth. Uh, and being able to handle it in a, any other way, they have instinctively turned to what they know best, brutality. So this is where we are now in an escalating dialectic between resistance and military force. So Martin Nielsen, uh, we heard from, from Christian now a description of what, uh, what is indeed a very diverse movement with a number of different actors and different groups involved in these uh, protests. Is there a chance that the military might succeed in manipulating some of these internal divisions among different groups of protesters uh, to, to its own advantage? Well, the Myanmar military are experts in divide and rule, but I think now that there's gloves are off. So it's not a, they're not able to do that to the same extent that they've done before, because this unique alliance that uh, Christian describes between various actors in, in Myanmar society, but also this combination or, or alliance be, between the democracy protesters and the peace movement is really, really unique. It's a fragile alliance, but um, not least because the extreme violence from security forces is taking its toll. And we see that the last couple of weeks that it's been increasingly hard to keep together, but it's not because of the usual divide and rule. It's more because of the brutality of the, of the Myanmar military. Uh, and I think the CDM, the civil uh, disobedience movement, is key. And it's also because it's it's been a platform for police to defect from the security forces. It hasn't been as many in numbers as uh, would be needed for, for a turn of, of this conflict, but it's a platform where police at least have, have been able to, to uh, join the movement as well. Um, and this movement has been unique and the reason why the military could not do what the military did in Thailand that I talked about, because it's been so unified. While in Thailand, the situation is of course completely different because you, you still have a divide between uh, the population. And this has to do with, with the monarchy as, as an important institution. But in Myanmar now, it's really the first time we see a, a strong uh, alliance between ethnic minorities 
students and, and young people, workers and all these kind of uh, combination. We've seen it partly in 1988 and, and after the, the student uprising there, but, but this is the first time you have this consolidated uh, in, in, in a different way. So, so it's quite unique. It's an interesting, interesting com comparison between the situation in Myanmar now and and uh, what's what's happened in in, in Thailand. Uh, Marte, if we turn even further to the international scene, uh, we have seen um, Indonesia's foreign minister cancel a scheduled visit to Myanmar uh, last month. We've seen uh, quite large crowds of pro-democracy protesters uh, surrounding, for example, the, the U.S. embassy calling for the newly elected president, uh, Joe Biden, to intervene uh, to stop the military and to free the country's detained leaders. Um, we hear from the European Union that they are preparing to widen the sanctions on the armed forces to target also the businesses they run. Uh, it seems that even the UN Security Council has now been able to issue a, a joint statement condemning the coup, uh, with even Russia and China backing this uh, statement, in spite of otherwise quite often voicing opinions in support of, of non-interference. Um, so, uh, Marty, could, could you tell us a bit more about the position of some of these uh, key global actors and what this is likely to mean for how the conflict uh, evolves. And then perhaps, uh, Christian, you can add your uh, re reflections uh, afterwards. Well, the Myanmar military are quite a, have quite some resilience when it, when it comes to, uh, to uh, uh, resist international pressure. A colleague of mine uh, just uh, recently uh, compared it to the Taliban as the only, one, only other um, military force who's not uh at all affected by international uh, politics uh, but i think the fact that the united nations security council has been able to unite and have like um united um statements on on myanmar now is very important and i think it shows also that um even though myanmar is very strategic um, country geopolitically in the region, we see that China is also not very happy with the instability that uh, this coup has caused, and they haven't been uh, consulted in 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 uh, in this uh, before the coup, and and they are quite concerned. So this is quite significant. But I was in a workshop uh, just last week with activists from all over Myanmar, and uh, because of the extreme violence that they're facing, it. It's, they're becoming increased uh, frustrated uh, and desperate. So there's a, there's a huge call on action from Myanmar protesters right now because they really are doing everything right uh, when it comes to being a nonviolent opposition. Uh, and and uh, but they they are extreme they they face extreme repression and now it's um, it's time to leave geopolitics aside and act so not just statements but political pressure and active diplomacy um, and I think um, well China is China and Myanmar has a very difficult uh, relationship a very intense but difficult relationship and I and um, and. The Tamado, the Myanmar military, don't really trust the Chinese very well, and the Chinese don't really trust the military that much either. But they are 
they are going to be cooperating because of there is so many uh, economic interests that China have in Myanmar. So they will not be, um, they will cooperate with whoever is in charge in, in Myanmar. But um, because of this dis difficult relationship, I think ASEAN now, the, the Southeast Asian countries are very key in, in trying to negotiate a solution where the Myanmar military finally stop the, the violence against the civilians. Because uh, ASEAN has invested a lot in, in Myanmar over the years, the 10 years as well. Um, and even though they have this very strong position of not interfering with other uh, countries, ASEAN countries are also quite sick and tired of, of Myanmar being sort of the top on the list on every international um, uh, meeting and uh, convention that they are part of. So they don't want to have Myanmar as the trouble country back again. Uh, and also China has a lot of leverage on, on these countries. So it's, it's possible that if ASEAN finally is able to unite and, and, and and work constructively on this issue that that could be uh, a possible solution, at least in the short term. But in the long term, this is a, this is a political struggle for Myanmar and uh, it will continue to be so. Christian, can I ask for your reflections on, on this question too? Yeah, I very much agree with what uh, Marta just said. Uh, I think that what uh, <clears throat> What we see now and what we have seen in recent years is that the uh, political developments in Myanmar is very much internationalized. Uh, Myanmar has gone from being uh, a somewhat uh, marginal location in international politics to become center, to become center stage in, uh, in uh, geopolitics in, uh, in Southeast Asia. And we see that there, uh, the democracy movement is calling for international intervention. They, they, they expect the international community to take action. Uh, and, uh, and for them, this conflict is so important. This is the one that they cannot afford to lose. And they find it very difficult to understand that the, that the, the international community is not coming to their side and backing them actively. Uh, of course, it's not going to be followed by military intervention. But, uh, but the activists expect at least political support uh, and, and maybe also eco economic support for the strikers and their families and so on and so forth. I think that the, they, their experience seen from the, the movement side is that the internationals either don't do enough or they, they, uh, they land on the wrong side, even if it's unintended. So uh, the, the activists are not satisfied by statements, although they're important. The Security Council resolution is very important, but they expect more. And uh, they do not tolerate uh, any, any initiative, any contact with the military that can be seen as uh, lending uh, the smallest piece of legitimacy to, to the junta. That's why we saw the demonstrations outside the Indonesian embassy. And that's why China is now coming under attack. Uh, and we might see more of that. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened with the, the Chinese owned factories that were torched uh, yesterday. But, uh, but this is possibly another sign of, uh, of the internationalization of, of the conflict.
this brings us to to an interesting theme that we also discussed at length when we had a webinar on on this uh, theme um, earlier this month, where both of you mentioned this relative lack of clear and unambiguous solidarity statements with the protesters from both many governments across the world, but also from quite a few civil society organizations, including those in the Nordic region. Um, Christian, how, in your view, how can civil society, and that would, in this case, include also the Burmese diaspora, how can and should civil society stand in solidarity with the protesters? Yeah, I think it's um, a broad range of actors, uh, not just civil society and the diaspora, but it is also uh, businesses, states, international organizations, political parties, academics. Uh, uh, but in general, it is important that on the one hand, that international actors put as much pressure as possible on the military regime itself. There must be no kind of recognition formally or informally for the regime. And there should be targeted economic pressure, including sanctions on military leaders and their business interests. On the other hand, it is also important that the international actors find ways to support the movement through statements of support and by offering humanitarian, economic and political uh, assistance to key actors in the movement. So far, states and international organizations have strongly condemned the coup and there have also been some sanctions against the military, and that's very good. What surprises me is that there have been relatively few statements of support uh, for the demonstrators and few signs of aid to the CRPH and to the CDM. I find it also surprising that the humanitarian and development NGOs, international NGOs, seem to have be chosen relative silence uh, without offering clear and explicit explanations for this. This is in contrast to international human rights organizations that have been much more outspoken. It is also very different from the diaspora organizations and international trade unions. Both of those have been outspoken and have found ways to support protesters, strikers, and their families, including economically. So it, I think it is possible, uh, but it is a question of interest and, and will to do so. I think that it is time to turn to political democracy support, not the indirect institutional or economic support for state building and, uh, and so on that we have seen in the past. Given what we have seen in recent weeks, this relative silence and passivity that I, that I think might be there. Although I should be a little bit cautious because there might be more than what I'm aware of. But given this relative inactivity, I think that uh, uh, it might be necessary to look for non-conventional ways of channeling political democracy support, uh, other than the, the well-established development NGOs, and maybe, uh, for instance, uh, emphasize diaspora organizations or international trade union uh, federations. 
Marta, can I can I ask for for your views also on this question of international solidarity? Yeah, I agree with Christian that it's it's crucial now to to channel uh, aid and funds to the protest movements and to the CDM and to the to the um, committee representing Pyram Soluto, the the Union Parliament, and and but also this, um, I'm. I'm more than statesmen, I, I'm I'm really uh, um, looking for political pressure and active diplomacy. That there's there's more pressure put on 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 the actors uh, and also the actors in the region. I think because now it's we have a very precarious situation because Myanmar is a heavily armed country with multiple active civil wars, and there is a risk now that if there's no perceived to be no action uh, from the international community and the region. We risk that some of these armed groups will go together and form a federal army and, and that violence will ex increase and escalate even further. So, and that will be in no one's interest and now it could possibly also destabilize the entire region. So it's not just about the situation for the people in Myanmar, but which is, of course, is my concern primarily, but this is also a, a concern for, for the entire region and geopolitically. There will be no, no one's interest to have a full-scale civil war flaming up in Myanmar at the moment. And if, there's no, if there is no um, clear action from, from international actors, that might be the, the risk. So this, uh, in a sense, brings us to to the question of the future. I mean, it's it's hard to prophesy, and especially so about the future. But if if we were to wrap up this conversation with uh, your reflections on what we should be expecting uh, to hear from Myanmar during the the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months, uh, what what kind of uh, what kind of scenario should we be mindful of, and and what are we what are we likely to see as we follow events unfolding from from the Nordic region here? Uh, Christian, could I could I hear your thoughts on this uh, first? Yeah, I will uh, briefly uh, suggest. Uh, three possible scenarios. Um, one scenario, which is uh, suggested and maybe uh, advocated by some international actors, is that there should be dialogue negotiations uh, to uh, basically to return to the political order that existed before the 1st of February. I don't think this, this is uh, realistic now. I don't think it's possible to, uh, to get the dialogue going. I don't think there's any deal to be had with the military at this moment. A second scenario is that uh, one of the two sides win. That, uh, uh, and as they get to a point where it becomes clear that uh, they're winning, uh, maybe there will be negotiations to, uh, to, to, to define the terms for the exit. So for instance, if the democracy movement is putting so much pressure on the military that they, that they have to give up, then, uh, then the, their exit can be negotiated. Um, th this is also not a very likely scenario in the, at least in the short run. Uh, the third one is that you will have some kind of a drawn out conflict um, uh, and a further escalation of what we see now, but not uh, any kind of clear resolution. Uh, that will be a very costly scenario 
unfortunately, uh, right now, it seems to be the most likely scenario for the coming weeks. Marta? For the next weeks and even months, I don't really know. But I think in the long run, just because, uh, exactly because this uh, pact that we talked about, uh, the, the political pact that the uh, parties have, have uh, accepted from the military is now broken, I think that um, we would not go back to what was uh, the situation with uh, with the military controlling the the politics to so, to such an extent. I think in the long run, this will uh, hopefully, but I also believe will will uh, lead to um, to more democratization down the line. But in the short term, I'm thinking, what can stop the violence and and Although it's really, really hard to know at this stage, um, there still is a possibility that the uh, Myanmar military will uh, will uh, remove its uh, current leaders, the General Mayan and also Second General Zhou Win, uh, to sort of re try to restore their uh, I don't know what to call it dignity or something, but that they will. That is the only way to sort of break the the change of or, or chain of violence right now. That they they are stepping back, uh, and then they have to remove the the lead general because he's uh, uh, invested so much in this. And and that has happened before in Myanmar, so it's not entirely impossible. But of course, this window is uh, slowly uh, closing. But I think uh, in the long term, not, nonetheless, we we could easily come out with. Um, with a more happy uh, outcome. But the problem is we don't really know how suffering there will be in between. Martin Nielsen and Christian Stocke, thank you for joining us for this fascinating and interesting conversation on Myanmar after the coup. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen, and thank you all for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. <laughs> You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.